You're listening to this week's episode of Macquarie Street Matters, a podcast about the personalities and events in the New South Wales Parliament here in Sydney with Alistair Hinskins. Well, Freya, I know that you think education's important and so do I. And so this week on Macquarie Street Matters, we've got Sarah Mitchell as our, as our guest former education minister, shadow education minister, really looking forward to going through a number of different issues with her. And we're also going to have a bit of a discussion about the continual bumbles by ministers in the men's government. Yep, that's right. Sarah was really great as education minister, clearly very, very competent. It'll be really great to hear from her shortly. Well, I'm super excited this week on Macquarie Street Matters to have the Honourable Sarah Mitchell, Shadow Education Minister, Great Education Minister when we're in government. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Alistair. Thanks for having me. And thanks for driving down a little bit earlier this morning from right. you know from your wonderful home. Now, do you still live in Gunnedah? Yes, yes, absolutely. So born and raised and lived there most of my life. I came to uni in Sydney. My first job was actually back in Gunnedah after I'd finished uni, so I don't think mum and dad were expecting me to come home, but I did. And then, yeah, we lived in Moree for a bit, my husband and I, before we got married. But Moved to Canada, back there just before we got married, just before I got elected. So it's always been home. So. Now, I read your inaugural speech, reread your inaugural speech to mm. um, prepare Lucky for you. this. And <laughs> so really interesting. And, and, you know, amongst the coalition MPs, there are some real themes. But, you know, your parents, when you were born, small business people, your father was an electrician, a mm. tradie, but had his own business. Uh, your mother had a, a, a store? Yeah, clothing a f- boutique clothing, clothing. called Mags in Gunnedah. Her name's Margaret. That's right. And it was there for many years. She sold it and it only sort of shut a few years ago, but it's something of an institution for the fashionable in the northwest. Now, I love shop. the story about your elder sister being, when she was, I'm presuming, very young, being mm. a pract- practice teacher yeah. and you being her student and... Yeah. and was she a hard disciplinarian? She was. So Amber, my sister, who actually now is in small business with her husband, they've got a property valuation business in Gunnedah. And then they also partnered with my brother who's in real estate. So they've gone into a bit of a different direction. But Amber was a teacher. But when we were kids, she used to always make us play schools. And we had all the cousins and everyone growing up. And we're all still in Gunnedah and all still really close, which I think is a bit unusual. But we're lucky to have that in our family. But yeah, Amber used to be a very hard taskmaster. School holidays, we used to have to do projects I remember saying like I want to go out and ride my bike she's like no you haven't done your project on the first fleet yet so you'd have to sit there while she'd mark everything with the red pen and you know it was it's funny now to look back on it because when she finished school she went in and did two years of nursing and my parents are like why are you not doing teaching? You've spent your whole childhood being the pseudo teacher for everybody. And so then she ended up changing and doing her teaching degree. And yeah, she was a primary school teacher for a number of years. Fantastic. Mm. That's, a, that's a really good story. Now, your parents then moved around a little bit, but you ended up back at Gunnedah and you were school captain of Gunnedah High. Yeah, I was. So we were up in Grafton or South Grafton for a while. Mum and Dad had a pub up there in a fairly interesting part of town. And so we actually lived at the pub for a few years as we were running that and got quite an education. Nothing in Macquarie Street scares me after seeing some of the nights in, in the pub. But really great people and, you know, some some wonderful community members. We really enjoyed our time up there. Uh, One yeah, of my early jobs was as a singer-guitarist oh. in, in what can only be described as some fairly rough pubs well, as a teenager in, in Newcastle. Oh, look. <laughs> the, not only heckled, but, <laughs> I mean, it was... It, it, it was Well, it was just an interesting crowd and, and it's fair to say that the responsible 
Civil Service of Alcohol laws have come a long way yeah. since then. Yeah. Well, see, this was all, this was like pre-poker machines in pubs and anyway, but like hard work. It's really hard work to run a pub and work in hospitality, and I certainly it saw is. that in in mum and dad and my auntie and uncle were in the in the pub with them. But yeah, we ended up moving back to Gunnada and I went to Gunnada High where I was kind of the old new girl because I'd been to primary school with everybody, but came back when I was sixteen. So you change oh, okay, a bit. Yes. And, yeah, was lucky enough to be be school captain. I actually got voted vice-captain and then the captain left, so I got promoted. Oh, okay. So my brother calls me, like, the Stephen Bradbury of school captains, like I just slide in at the end and manage to get get in. But I'd only been at the school for about a year when I well, got elected. Well, look, that might so. be a bit of a segue yeah, into something else. It's a story which of my is, life, Alistair. Well, you know, in, in many respects... So you were 29 when you came into Parliament and in yeah. 2011. Yeah. And you were 11th on the Legislative Council ticket and no one ever who had been 11th had mm-hmm. ever got elected. But mm. because of the huge Barry O'Farrell landslide in mm. 2011, you actually got into Parliament. So mm. that's a little bit like your school that's captain right. I'm, story. I'm quite good at being lucky and, you know, I'm very fortunate. But I think for me... It's interesting when we look at that election. So Niall Blair, who used to be here, he was number 10 and I was number 11. And I remember when we got pre-selected, I think he had about a 30% chance of getting in because the polls were quite good for a change of Mm. government. But, you know, you never know what happens on election day. And then I was about a 10% chance. And so I actually planned my wedding for two weeks before the election because I didn't think that we... No, two weeks after, sorry. So I didn't think that I would get in. And so I thought, oh, well, after that we can get married, we'll go on honeymoon and I'll come back and work out what I'm going to do and, and anyway it was when I was away I realised that I was going to be a politician it so didn't, we came back uh, to it. It didn't work out the way that you planned. But, but I think it worked out better. It worked out fantastically. But yeah, it was, it was a weird, like we moved house, we got married and I got elected to parliament literally within wow. about a six week period. What a, what, so. a, what a personal earthquake. Yeah, yeah, but we don't know any different I yeah. suppose. So, but it's interesting for us as Nats because obviously Niall um, ended up being in the leadership team, being a minister as have I and so we, we sort of are quite lucky that we both got the chance to be here because we've been able to be quite involved. Which there may be some lessons for our political parties in all of that uh, and, and candidate selection. Mm. One of the um, one of my really fond memories of your time as education minister was when you, Gladys Berry Chicklian, and I opened up the new hall at Karingai mm. High School, mm. and I, I remember us. You know, it was in the it was in the depths of COVID and all the rest of it. But mm. I remember just sort of reflecting and saying, "Well, here we are. Three of us would all gone to our local high school, mm. local non-selective high schools, mm. and here we are. Mm. You know, members of parliament, and you know, you and Gladys doing great work. As as do you, Alistair? Don't well, sell yourself short. You but know, yeah. but you know, yeah. well, then that was, and of course. The, the the demonstration of your great education in our public education system at Gunnedah High mm-hmm. was for all to see in the election campaign when Ben Fordham oh, asked yeah. you <laughs> and the now education minister to do a year seven mathematics NAPLAN problem. Yes. And it was fair to say that not only did you get it right, but our current education minister had very little understanding of mathematical concepts because she got it <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so incredibly wrong. Yeah. Look, I will say, you know, it, it was quite a nerve-wracking experience. I've never been more nervous to do a four times multiplication in my life. So was there in, any in pre-warning? Def- no. <laughs> and so I would say in fairness to Prue, like, it, you know, it was, a, it, it, it was a stressful period that you've got a camera on you and you've got Ben and you're thinking, I should really know this, it shouldn't be that hard. So, you know, it was all a bit of fun. But you did very well. Well, look, I did get it right and she didn't. But, you know, 
there are there are moments that we all have that I'm sure we would redo, and I suspect that's probably one for her. So. You did say in your inaugural speech that you were a very student. You know, you were much more for reading a book under a tree yeah. rather than going out and playing sport. Yeah, but funnily enough, <laughs> yes, not the elite athlete. I, I love. I've always loved reading, and I. From, from a very young age, just devouring all different sorts of books. I still do now. I try to read as much as I can. I don't have as much time as I, I used to for that, but I've always really loved it. And it's funny looking at my daughters, my eldest daughter particularly, who's 10, she's in year four, exactly like me as a child, like very, very into reading, will pick up anything quite, you know, gets very invested in a book, which I, I kind of love. My second daughter needs a little bit more, but she's kindy, so she's just learning how to read. But my oldest is, is a bit of a carbon copy of me, which is funny how genetic work sometimes interestingly when one not not that either of us are billionaires but apparently one of the things that most billionaires have in common Mm. bill gates or warren buffett or you know these incredibly successful people is is the amount of reading that they Mm. do every day Mm. and the amount of information that they process Mm. reading is such an important skill isn't Mm. it and and it's great that your daughter is following in yeah. mum's footsteps. Well, I mean, it just, like it's it's the precursor. You can't learn anything if you can't read. And that's why, you know, we'll probably talk about it in a little bit in terms of education policy, but very strong on phonics because, for me, phonics is the best evidence-based way to teach children how to read. Mm. And, you know, sounding out the letters and the sounds that they make, I remember learning to read that way. But it's such a fundamental skill that just underpins everything because you can't understand a math question or, you know, a scientific concept or remember something in history if you can't actually read it and comprehend the information and so Mm. I guess from a policy standpoint I think it's really important but just the pleasure of picking up a book I try and read all different kinds of things I I go outside my comfort zone I read books people recommend that I would never pick up myself and you know I think that's part of the joy of it too is that you discover things that you didn't know about people or subjects. Certainly as a barrister I used to do a huge amount of reading. Yes. Um, for but, work, not but, so much for pleasure. Yes, guess, not not yeah, exactly. Yeah. So not so much, not so much anymore. But can I just take you to your kind of political apprenticeship? And mm-hmm. something that I didn't realise was that you worked for John Anderson, and that you were, you know, he was. I think you worked or volunteered for two weeks in the yeah. two thousand and four election when he was deputy prime minister, and then worked for him. After that, that must have been a great experience. Oh, it was amazing. And John was my local member and I knew somebody who worked in his electorate office. And I was at UNSW doing a science and arts degree, although by that stage I'd just moved into the arts because I didn't really enjoy the science. So was studying political relations effectively, international relations, politics and a bit of anthropology and sociology as well, which comes in interesting in this place. But but I didn't know what to do and I didn't want to go and do a bureaucratic sort of type pathway and there was a lot of talk about graduate courses and and I wanted to live back in the country but I didn't know what you could do in politics and a girl that I know was working for John Anderson and I said can I come and do work experience and see what happens if you work for a politician and she's like yep great come in spend a couple of weeks so we it was the 2004 federal campaign as you said John was deputy prime minister so we were door knocking we had media it was like the whole, you know, circus that goes with the the final weeks of a campaign. I just loved it. And they ended up saying, it's great, come back every holidays, be casual, work for us. And then when I was about to finish, John offered me a job. So he'd stepped down as Deputy Prime Minister then and was going to retire. And I thought, okay, I'll go and do that for a year or two and see what happens. And then I, you know, joined the National Party and I met my now husband and fell in love with it all. And I'm still there in one way, shape or form and never been happier. So things work out as they're meant to, I think. 
John Anderson was not only, you know, an incredibly strong leader of the mm. National Party, a great Deputy Prime Minister in, in, in a time when our federal government has probably never been better in my lifetime, mm. but he's now had this incredible sort of post-political yeah. career as a podcaster and, and, and a thought leader. Yeah. Did, did you think that would happen? I, when I first found out about his podcast, I said, you've got to have someone helping you with the IT, John, because I know that that wasn't a strong point from when we were in his office. A bit but, like me. But, but I, oh, <laughs> I can really can't talk. But I think, like, John, John is just a fundamentally decent human being and he's always had such a sharp mind in terms of policy but in terms of, I think, reading what people want to hear at certain points in time too. And I think what he's doing now particularly, I mean, I still see him and his wife from time to time and obviously living still in, in Gunnedah and they're a little way out of town on a property. I normally run into him at the airport more than anywhere else. But it doesn't surprise me because of the kind of man that he is. And people look to that kind of statesmanship and leadership that he and John Howard had during that time. And I think we see it now. You know, John Howard, I think, is as much a social and political commentator now as he ever was and probably more so because people realise how strong those two men are in terms of their vision but being able to articulate it so well and so I'm not surprised because I think John's a brilliant man and always has been but it's it's lovely to see him be able to make that contribution in a different way even though he's no longer in politics. I mean I think it's an interesting thing in politics that because he was Deputy Prime Minister to John Howard, who was such a big figure, mm. unless you probably knew him as well as you did, it, mm. it is, a, for me, I find it, oh, wow, this is yeah, okay. this is a sort of a John Anderson I didn't know, yeah, you know, that, okay. he, that he had well, these, good, then, these qualities. Yeah. And I think you're, you're, you're spot on that the thing about him and John Howard is their clarity of message. Yeah. They are so clear and, and as you say, to some degree, John Howard is speaking out more. He, he's, I think he's been particularly wound up in recent times about what's happened with the anti-Jewish mm. sentiment that's been expressed within our community mm. and he's been incredibly strong on that. But he is able to just come out, whether mm. it's at election time or... He's, he's very good at just synthesising a mm. message and... And, and he's always seems to be spot on. Yeah, and it's interesting with even someone like John Anderson, who was obviously the federal member for many years, but he was our sort of guest of honour at our Gunnedah Australia Day event, I the last year or the year before, might have been last year. Anyway, the, the local town hall, packed full of people who would have heard John speak, you know, probably 20 times, but you could have heard a pin drop in, like he can just get up and, and he was speaking about what it means to be Australian and it was just the, like... The most spot-on message, as I said, for someone who we all knew quite well because he's a, a local to our area, but I've never seen someone be able to have such presence and command a room in that way and he still does it exceptionally well and, and so I think having that platform for him is it's exciting. And I am in awe of his IT skills because they've come a long way, as I said. So. I've heard him speak on a number of occasions recently and the thing that strikes me about John Anderson is that he is almost... He is almost that sort of old-fashioned politician who you feel has really... And John Howard's like this to a certain degree too, where you really feel that they've they've clearly honed their skills mm. in a very, mm. you know, very sharp fashion through probably addressing millions mm. of small mm. halls mm. in regional, you know, in regional areas yeah. over many years. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, so anyway, different generation. Maybe, 
Maybe that's something that the more modern generation of politicians need to do more of, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, for us as Nats, there's still a lot of, you know, small meetings in CWA halls and country shows and chatting to people. But I, I think when you look at someone like John, you know, all politics is relational. And I think if, you, if you're giving a message that people want to hear and you're listening and you're picking up on what the community is saying to you, then I think that resonates. Mm. But I think the platform changes a little bit. And even, do, you know, we're doing a podcast now. Mm. When I was first elected in 2011, we weren't doing podcasts. We weren't listening to them. Social media wasn't a thing. We got a BlackBerry when we first got it elected and I thought that was the height of technology, <laughs> right? So, you know, things even in the this is my 13th year now, like, it does evolve and I think the sentiment has to kind of remain even if the way of delivering a message might change with technology and, and with the way that the world, yeah, I guess, wants to get that information. I, I guess now you create your own church hall yeah. atmosphere. Well, we're doing it right now, that, that, aren't we? Well, yeah. hopefully we are. <laughs> Now, Our um, own soapbox. Now, now I'm not going to let you um, get away without speaking a lot about education. Mm. Um, what what do you consider to be your major policy achievement? And I'm go, I'll go through a few. But yeah. but what what really hits you as the thing that you're most proud of a, um, as education minister? So it's hard because I think we did some good work and I think for me, following on from particularly Adrian Pickley and then Rob Stokes, I think we all had our own approach. I It, it sounds a bit strange, but I actually think the early childhood reform piece is actually the one that stands out for me because what we can do in that space and the impact that that has on education for the rest of a child's life is really important and I think policymakers still need to be talking about that. Uh, I certainly am and obviously being shadow for both early childhood and education and being minister for both but I think that reform piece around particularly pre-kindergarten if every child before they start kindergarten in this state has five days of free preschool has a full suite of development checks before they start school has had that opportunity for that cognitive social emotional development that 90% happens before they even start kindergarten that to me is what actually will help set them up for success in school. And so even though it's an early childhood piece, I think that reform has the power to really change education in this state. Now, it was a policy area that had bipartisan support before the election. Obviously, we'd done some work with the Victorian Labor Party when both Dom and Dan Andrews announced it. So it was something that was above politics and it should be. Having said that, we've still got a job to hold the the current government to account. They had said they would deliver that before us. We had a 2030 timeline because this is significant reform, they haven't given me a date as to when, just that it'll be sooner, so we'll see. I'm a little bit sceptical. But the, the, the change that that can make is something that I think can fundamentally shift education outcomes for children. So I'm going to pick that one because of the range of impact that I think it will have. It won't surprise you to know that doing my homework for what I should be talking to you about education, mm. I, I consulted... Don Perrottet, oh, yes. and he named that yeah. as the first one. The, the other thing that he said was that the way in which that policy developed was that when he was treasurer, mm. you came to him mm. and said, what about at least doing two or three days yeah. a week? They found the funding for that. Mm. And then it was off the back of the success, mm. the, the measured success of that investment mm. that that he came, you, mm. you developed together, mm the sort of the five-day-a-week universal pre-K. And and as you say, a really interesting bipartisan approach Mm. with Victoria so that you had, between New South Wales and Victoria, you had half of the 
half mm. of the nation mm. announcing that that was going to be mm. a policy initiative that really gave the policy huge momentum yeah i mean and for me i think it also shows when you get the opportunity to be in a portfolio for a longer period of time. So I had six years all up in early childhood. So when I was first a minister, I had that and I had Aboriginal affairs. And then after two years, took on education, but kept early childhood. And that was important to me because I was very invested in it. But I think that longer term policy development, and as Don would have said, you know, every budget, we got more money, we were proving why this works. And it's not just, I mean, there's economic positives for families as well, but also for children in terms of their learning capacity and the stats around you're far less likely to end up needing juvenile justice if you've had that those quality early years. You're less likely to end up in, you know, needing health support. You're more likely to finish school. Like the best indicator of how a child will finish school at the end of year 12 is actually how they perform at the beginning of kindergarten. So, so much mm. is done before you even begin and I think I think that's changed the perception of that or the recognition of that in the last few years I actually had a meeting with some stakeholders last week and I think drumming that home continually is really important to continue to do it because we all focus on school mm. and and that's important but there's a lot that you can do before children even start mm. that has a massive positive impact and that's where we can't take our eye off the ball. Now one of the reasons that we both feel passionate about education is because we understand that it is an enabler mm. for people to with ability mm. regardless of their background to actually progress in life mm. and, and to succeed in life and and the thing about the pre-k it seems to me is that 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 is the area where people from a more affluent better educated background have mm. a huge advantage because their parents are able to do so much more of that, you know, preparatory work. Mm. By having a universal pre-K, mm. you're actually, you, you, you're more levelling the playing field again, aren't you? Mm. Well, I think you're just giving that level of engagement to all children and especially those who need it the most. And the way that we did a lot of our funding, even for the preschool funding that exists now, is that it's much more affordable for families who really do need that financial support. We did free preschool for a couple of days. Like, it's about breaking down any barrier that a family might have to be able to access it. And for some, it's financial. For others, it's about increasing the availability because there are people who mm. would like to send their children more days but they can't get the extra days at childcare or at, mm. at, a, at a community preschool so you know really rolling that out and I think for us that's why you know the vision was by 2030 because there's a lot of work you've got to do you've got to make sure that you've got the places available for effectively 100,000 children across the state five days a week you need the educators who do amazing work supported and paid well to be able to do it um, and then you've got to come up with solutions in really unique situations so some of the more remote communities in New South Wales and obviously being in that I spend a lot of time out in the regions but what does this look like in Menindi or Wilcannia or what does it look like in Gunnedah what does it look like in your electorate how do you make it work for those communities and, and really get the funding to flow and so it's all there to do and it's just the implementation now as I said but we'll, we'll watch closely I'm you know I'm concerned with the with the the rollout so far purely because at the moment the government is talking about a hundred preschools on school sites over the next four years that's not enough to deliver the five days I worry that their language is changing a little bit even though they're saying they're committed to it so you know this is something we'll, we'll have to keep watching in opposition but I, I I want bipartisan support for this I don't want to be negative about it but yeah. I will hold them to account if they don't deliver in the same way that we had intended to because it actually matters for children and families and we got to it be does. really on it because it will change 
the trajectory of the lives of so many children mm. and help improve education outcomes, social outcomes, economic outcomes, like as you can tell, very passionate about it because it underpins so much and, and that's why it matters so much to me. And, and I think as you've already said that no one gives you a manual when you have children and you don't know necessarily why your whether your child mm. is not developing in the way that they should so actually mm. having that sort of early professional yeah, assessment absolutely. is incredibly important to to be nipping any Mm. issues in the bud mm. early on mm. and then you can have multiple children i mean i have two girls they're very different mm. to each other in terms of personality and so you you might think you know but then you might have subsequent children that are different and you're not sure and and i think the development checks which again is, is starting to roll out this year and i welcome that and again we'll be watching the rollout closely but it's only about 40 percent of families that do have that mm. year before school check for even things like vision and hearing and any sort of cognitive or behavioural challenges, if that doesn't happen and you're not quite sure what support that child needs and then they start kindergarten and you don't have the support mechanisms in place. So it's all really been designed to work as seamlessly as possible for families. But also if you can get early intervention and support, then you can start to really model what will be needed in education when that child's in kindergarten and going on through their years of school and then the teachers know what to expect and and I, I, I can see it working incredibly well as long as we get all the pieces in the right place. So we will see. Now, in the context of reading, mm. you've already mentioned phonics. Yes. Uh, now, that was an incredibly sort of... There was a point in time when phonics or not phonics was yeah. very controversial. The reading wars. Yes, the yeah. reading wars. Yeah. Um, is the men's government keeping our initiatives on phonics or are they walking away from well, them a bit? Well, they, they say that they are. One of the interesting things is the new curriculum that's starting to roll out, which started actually under Rob Stokes, the review, and then the implementation. We had wanted it all in within a few years. They've stretched that out now to give teachers more time. I guess that's their prerogative as a government. But the cater to maths and English syllabuses are being taught in schools now with a big focus on phonics in, in English. The 3 to 10 will start to roll out soon and so that's in there now which means every school both government and non-government have that explicitly in the curriculum which is a good thing one of the other things that we brought in was a, a mandatory phonics check in year one where you can test how children are tracking and whether they're actually meeting the benchmarks and that has worked well in South Australia they did it in the UK because you've got to measure I think otherwise you don't actually know whether you're having the impact so that that is mandatory I'm told by the government in questioning that yes they will be keeping that but the other thing that we had set for every school was a phonics target so that each year you wanted to see improved growth they haven't confirmed that that will continue which to me is a concern because I think you really need to not just have the assessment but also the target so that schools are really aiming to improve and there's not a lot of information about that so I, I am I'm a little concerned about it I also am a bit concerned frankly that that the union has met with the minister more than anyone else and they've been anti-phonics in the past so we'll see how that eventuates but I think the science and research is there behind phonics hopefully the government will, will stick to it as they say that they're going to but time will tell well I think you're spot on by being concerned about the target because mm. What we've seen uh, in the budget is that all of the um, the measurement mm. that we would have and the transparency of whether you know how how things are tracking mm. they've taken out of the budget, mm. and so this is a government that doesn't like targets or anything that they can actually be held accountable yeah. for. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me that that they're equivocating on whether they're going yeah. to keep. I mean, they say the they'll still do the the check and that that 
statewide data will be released. I mean, and, and the teacher in the class, it takes five to seven minutes. So they know straight away how the child's progressing. Mm. But what concerns me a bit is that could be mandatory, but if it's not really being assessed more broadly in terms of, well, actually your school's, you know, not seeing those phonics improvements, let's have a look at what your kindergarten, you know, yes, you're teaching to the curriculum, but what are the resources or how can we improve that? It's just all very connected in my view. And so I, it, that does concern me, but mm. we'll, we'll see what eventuates. Well, Freya, I continue to be amazed at the way in which the ministers in the men's government keep making mistakes. And what we've seen is a really troubling sort of two-faced approach by the police minister where the police minister will get on Ray Hadley and talk tough about law and order and and against protesters at, at Botany, but then will go and address the Newcastle media and say how she supports people protesting for 30 hours at Newcastle Harbour. I mean, does she not realise that when she speaks to MBN3 on, in Newcastle that people won't actually understand what she's been saying? That's really bizarre. Have we ever seen a minister that displays such profound levels of inconsistency in how they treat different protesters as police minister? Well, it's, it's a really good point. I, I don't think so. And I think, I think the fundamental problem is to be police minister, you must have a respect for the law and a respect for law and order. The fact of the matter is that Yasmin Catley is from the left of the Labor Party and we know that they have a very troubled relationship with the concept of the rule of law. Mm. And I guess as well... Does she feel some affinity for the unions who were supporting the Newcastle protests? Is that getting in the way of her sound decision-making? Well, both at Port Botany and also uh, at the Port of Newcastle, uh, the MUA seems to be floating around uh, the Maritime Union of Australia. Her husband is a life member of that union. I, I, I would almost be certain that she herself is a member of the union because Labor MPs all have to be member of a union. Her father-in-law was the national president, John Coombs, who actually was against John Howard's waterside, refor waterside reforms, uh, which actually has hugely reduced the cost of goods coming into Australia if John Howard had not done that because there was just rorts all over the place on the waterfront. So I think definitely that strong relationship with the MUA is a big problem for her in her current portfolio as police minister. I mean, this seems to be the consistent theme that comes up time and time again. Whenever you have a party that is governing for vested interests, which in this case for Labor is the unions, it will always get in the way of making transparent, fair and consistent decisions. I, I think that's a really good point because... One of the fundamental differences between the Liberal Party and the Labor Party is that the Labor Party is essentially a party for vested interests, particularly the trade union movement and industry super funds, whereas the Liberal Party is actually a party of values and particularly freedom, freedom of the individual. And so it is a very different... You, you get a very different outcome when one of those parties is in government compared to the other. How do you think these consistent scandals is going to play out for the Minns government? 
Well, I think I think they're incredibly damaging for Chris Minns personally. I think people are looking at Chris Minns and they're seeing an incredibly weak leader because he's not able to deal with these accident-prone, underperforming ministers in the way that the public expects him to. And, and I think what Labor have now is leadership paralysis, both at a federal level where Anthony Albanese is incredibly weak mm. and now at a state level with Chris Minns is incredibly weak. And I think we're seeing a collapse in public support for both of those governments as a consequence. Totally, totally. And we've, we continue to see this Joe Halen situation unfold as well. So we've seen more documents released basically outlining the role that her non-political department liaison officer was playing in her office, including creating questions against you for her to ask her in question time. What do you think that says about the Minns government? Well, I think what what's really interesting is today it's become apparent that that in fact Joe Halen was actually sending emails acknowledging and understanding what he was doing. So she's always pretended that she didn't know what was going on. She can't be across everything that's happening in her office. That's been her defence. But there's now documentary evidence inconsistent with that. So I think that's a big problem. But, but, but Freya, if the... Uh, electorate has given us one clear message as politicians in a number of recent elections, federal and state, is how important integrity in government is. And so when you have a minister who is flouting the rules around staffing, who's manipulating hiring processes to get a spin doctor, Labor Party donor in as the uh, secretary of her department, when you have cover-ups where press releases are changed by the police minister before they're released, you, you start having, you know, a, a real sniff, a real stench of, of things not being right and integrity certainly not being at the core of the government. 100%. And it's this idea of cumulative damage from sustained incompetence that we talked about in the last episode. And we are continuing to see that play out. It's, I mean, look, Labor's slogan in this campaign was a fresh start. The only thing fresh about this government is the fresh scandal every week. <laughs> There's a lot of tarnish around that fresh start, that's for sure. And yeah, I th- look, I think, I think it's the combined impact of a, of a lack of competence and a lack of integrity that that is really causing problems for this men's government. Mm. Well, we will continue to follow all of these matters closely and, and scrutinise and, and create accountability wherever we can. As we go into the last sitting week of Parliament this year. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Macquarie Street Matters and I look forward to you joining us again next week. Together.